With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, there's just a lot going on around college sports right now, believe it or not, even though sports overall are shut down. Um, in, a, in a little bit, we're going to bring on our colleague Nicole Auerbach to talk about some of the issues surrounding NIL and the big announcement by the NCAA last week that at long last, athletes will be able to profit off their name, image, and likeness. But uh, I was really uh, intrigued by a story you put up this week about the quarterback class uh, coming back in college football and for the 2021 draft. Everybody talks about Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, and rightfully so. But who after that? And you talk to a whole bunch of people. Tell us what you found out. Yeah, so look, what we've seen, and Joe Burrow is obviously the best example of this, of a guy who came from at least off the NFL radar. I mean, he was a guy that if you ask people a year out, they probably would have said, oh, fifth-round pick or something along those lines. But it was nobody thought Kyler Murray was going to be the first pick in the draft, and that was the way it was in 2019. Mitch Trubisky became a breakout quarterback who went second, and Blake Bortles was the first quarterback picked in 2014. So what I wanted to do was ask uh, a lot of coaches, scouts, people who analyze the draft, and people who really work in the quarterback space Look at some of these guys, and you tell me, who do you think is the most intriguing? Who do you think has the best chance, handicap, to really springboard, maybe even overtake Lawrence, although that seems like a long shot, but get into maybe the top 10. And so the guy who really got the lion's share of the intrigue and and seemed to have the most support was a guy we actually wrote about last month, and that's Trey Lance who's just completed his retro freshman year at North Dakota State. I'm going to read what Bucky Brooks, who's a former NFL scout and a draft analyst for uh, NFL Network, had told me. Trey Lance could emerge as a contender for the number one spot due to his combination of athleticism, poise, and playmaking ability. He reminds me a lot of Deshaun Watson with his style of play. He can carve you up from the pocket or use his legs to create plays on the perimeter. He takes good care of the ball. Most important, he wins. With NDSU producing pros at the position, scouts are going to take him seriously as a prospect, and the NFL shift towards more athletic playmakers at the position could help him climb the charts. Again, this was a guy who had 28 touchdowns and zero picks and ran for 1,100 yards in his first season playing college football. Um, Who else on my – I mean, you've already read the story, I assume. Who else of the quarterbacks mentioned do you think – has a chance to really soar up the boards. Yeah, I mean, looking at your list, there's guys who obviously we're very familiar with at this point, like Sam Ellinger, uh, who's who's been around seemingly forever. Kyle Trask obviously emerged last year for Florida. But you've also got guys on here who have barely played at this point. Um, you, you have Davis Mills from Stanford, who just got the starting job late last season. Um, Joe Milton from Michigan has not even played yet. So... Uh, it just shows you how wide open it is. There's a guy that on here that I think, you know, you made the Joe Burrow example. Um, Dave Aranda is now the head coach at Baylor. He brought over George Munoz, who worked very closely with Joe Burrow last year. And, and it made me think, well, could Charlie Brewer at Baylor, who I believe is a, has already been a three-year starter, um, could he be the guy that, I mean, he's already played pretty well. But could he make, be the guy that makes that jump if suddenly in that offense next year he's throwing for 4,500 yards and 45 touchdowns? Yeah, he was one of the ones I was curious about for the, you know, and I, people were reading the story for that, for the for those reasons. Now, he doesn't have ideal size, and I think the people I talked to was were a little skeptical of his, of his physical tools. 
And they said, good, nothing that really, really wowed them. Uh, the, the ones that kind of... Davis Mills was very interesting to hear about because, like I said, I talked to guys who coach in the NFL, guys who work in the NFL, and one of the things that came up with him, and remember, when Davis Mills was coming out of high school, he was ranked above Tua among quarterbacks, but he's had a bunch of major knee injuries, and last year was the first time he was healthy. Um, when you talk to, when, when I talk to these people, they're like, I know how much David loves this kid. That came up multiple times from NFL people. So I, I think he's going to be interesting. Now, what's what's noteworthy with Davis Mills is, yeah, he's got Walker Little hopefully coming back healthy but he, on the offensive line, but it's not like Stanford has a great amount of skill talent around him. So we'll see, we'll see what he can do. Um, Joe Milton is a guy who I, I put on there because I know how – highly regarded his physical tools are. Now, one of the things I got back was, yeah, I've heard about his arm and I've heard about his ability, but the NFL is very skittish on guys who are really one-year wonders. And we're not talking about, you know, Joe Burrow, people can say he had one great year, but he pl- he started another year and he played a lot of games over those two years. Whereas the one-year wonder guy who I think would probably fit in and he's Definitely, Joe Milton's a better athlete than this guy. Um, is Dwayne Haskins, who had one terrific year and and went high in the draft. Now, well, could Joe Milton be that guy? He hasn't even won the starting job yet, and there's no spring for him to even really d- further develop. So I, I think that seems like a reach at this point. A um, couple other names on the list. Chase Bryce, Clemson fans will remember him. When uh, for people who read the story, Jim Nagy, who is the head of the Senior Bowl, said he is the highest-rated senior quarterback in the country, even though he's thrown less than 100 passes last year. So um, he's one on there. I think a lot of people are very interested to see what you will get from Kellen Mond at Texas A&M, from Sean Clifford at Penn State. Both guys are really good athletes, uh, you know. But right now, I don't think they're at that point. And then another one is really interesting is Jamie Newman, who was at Wake Forest and now will go to Georgia. Um, the comments on Jamie Newman in the story, as people will read, like him as well as Kyle Trask, I think are very interesting to, to kind of pour over. In terms of Trey Lance, I feel like this has become a recent thing where nobody had, you know, nobody who, who is primarily a, a Power 5 college football fan knew a thing about Carson Wentz. And then all of a sudden, the day after the previous year's draft and all the early ones come out it's like all of a sudden everybody is so rah-rah about Carson Wentz and it proved to be correct same thing with Josh Allen like when he started showing up on those draft lists if Trey Lance played for any other FCS team besides North Dakota State the reigning power do you think he would be getting this level of hype already it's hard to say because would he have led that would he have led that other program to a national title I mean 28 touchdowns and zero picks is unheard of especially when you factor in the guy ran for 1,100 yards. I had a coach who has faced him, who coached at a high level in college football before that, said, I think he's the best college quarterback in the country. And just and this is a guy who's seen him and studied him. He thinks he's that good. But, again, it's, it's all subjective at this point, right? Um, you know, one of, the, one of the NFL people I talked to didn't realize how big Trey Lance was. He goes, I've seen him, uh, you know, I've watched him. But I didn't realize he was he was as big as he is. You know, I had to tell him. He was like, I think he's 6'1", 200. I'm like, no, he's 6'3", 225. And that's a big difference, in, you know, when it comes to uh, what the NFL ideally is looking for. Now, that doesn't mean, look, I think when North Dakota State plays, there's a really, really good chance he's not going to have zero picks. I mean, that's, that's almost impossible to do. But... Right now, um, you know, he seems to be the guy that people are buzzing about the most because there is just a lot of intrigue. And as you said, because he's on the most dominant program in the sport. Helps. Well, right now he's scheduled to play against defending Pac-12 champion Oregon in week one. So there's going to be a great evaluation opportunity right there. A lot of these guys on the list, frankly, could, you know, this is why it's so important for them to be able to have as close to a full season as possible this year because a lot of them just haven't had a chance. I mean, Ian Book, Kellen Mond, these guys have put a lot on tape at this point, but 
you know, Chase Bryce, we saw him in one game uh, at Clemson. Brock, uh, Brock Purdy's played a lot. Um, Derek King's played a lot, but obviously people are going to see him at the Power 5 level. Uh, Miles Brennan, obviously, has not had a chance to put anything on tape. So a lot of these guys... You know, Even like Jamie Newman and KJ Costello, they played a lot, but now they're in different situations. Yep. Yep. So uh, a lot, I mean, there's a lot writing on every, for everybody on whether there's going to be a season, how many games will the season last and all that. But certainly for guys who are looking to, to uh, improve their draft stock. Otherwise, you're probably just going to have to default to, um, you know, the guys who, who have played a lot. Maybe they're, they have a lot of work to do still. I mean, Sam Ellinger, put up good stats in general last year, but obviously had some bad games as well. And maybe some people feel like he even regressed a little bit. So he could really use the opportunity for that bounce back season. Can, can I ask you one Ellinger question? Mm-hmm. So there were a couple of names that came up for Sam Ellinger uh, comparisons. One was Tim Tebow, but a better passer. Another one was Jalen Hurts. The third one comes from uh, one of our colleagues who, after he read the story, made an interesting point, and that was Max Olson. And he said Dak Prescott, which I thought was interesting. Um, which of those guys do you think he is most would be most like? Nobody has chronicled Sam Ellinger more closely over his career than Max Olson. So if he says Dak Prescott, then I'll believe Dak Prescott. You know, the Tim Tebow comparison... Um, I, maybe was more accurate early on in his career when he was relying more heavily on his running ability. I think now he's, you know, primarily a, a pocket passer. Um, you know, I think uh, I don't think he's necessarily been as dominant a, a college quarterback as Dak Prescott was at Mississippi State, uh, but maybe he has a similar skill set. I don't. He's a, he's a, he's one of these quarterbacks that's hard to typecast. He's he's very unique. Um, but he's got great leadership abilities, obviously, um, and and I think, frankly, gets a little bit overlooked in the national conversation sometimes. So um, I, I, my hunch is that one of these other kind of upstart guys will end up being higher than him. Uh, but, you know, that's impossible to predict now. And as you've said many times, the, the early, early mock drafts and especially at the quarterback position, I mean, we've seen so many examples of guys who are getting buzz uh 11 months in advance who ended up going undrafted or fifth round picks and then and then you know who would have ever guessed going into his really one season at Oklahoma that Kyler Murray would be the number one pick the next year certainly nobody would have guessed Joe Burrow would be the number one pick so a lot lot still to play out uh what do you say we get to our guests all right at long last the NCAA is leaning toward allowing athletes to profit off their name image and likeness and who better to come in and discuss that with us somebody who's been covering that story relentlessly our friend and colleague nicole auerbach nicole how are you today hello i am um same as every day i sit in the same corner of my apartment on the same part of the couch it's um getting a little lopsided so i should probably mix that up at some point but hanging in there nicole it's uh, to me this is a, a a long time coming. I think we've all written a lot about it as outline for people who maybe saw the headline but don't know what don't know what guardrails might refer to from the people you've talked to what do you think this is going to translate into as it goes through the process. Right. So The NCAA has been really good with their headlines throughout this. They have convinced a lot of people that they are doing this out of their own free will, that they believe that athletes deserve to be compensated for their likeness, which is not, they're doing this because they've been challenged in the courts. They've been challenged by state laws, Um, but they, they do understand they have to modernize. And we got a glimpse at what some of those specifics look like. And when you see the word guardrails, you know, your your spidey sense should 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 tingle, right? Because that's what they're going to use here to try to restrict the free market. Um, what that looks like right now in, in what was proposed from their working group that looked at like the name, image and likeness stuff is restrictions about, you know, OK, you can't do any promotional activity or endorsements with your jersey on um, or film anything in your athletic facilities. 
Um, you know, there could be potential restrictions they're exploring about, like, can you not work with shoe companies because they've been involved in recruiting cases and problems in the past? Um, you know, is it, it's not clear, you know, are you going to be able to partner with a company that is not already aligned with your school, you know, like a Coke versus a Pepsi conversation, Nike versus Adidas. Right? Um, those are restrictions that are not going to allow the athletes who are going to have some real potential to make some money. It's going to be capped. So when you talk to people who work in this space, um, you know, there's obviously companies that are sprouting up around, you know, social media and how to help athletes maximize you know, their potential there, grow their followings and set up deals that make sense. You know, those are the people who are saying that this is a cap without it technically being a cap because they're not saying like, okay, Bruce Feldman, you're only able to make $20,000 per year. That's what you're capped at. But they're restricting the different types of brands and the things you're allowed to do on the front end. So you might never get to what the actual like an open free market would get for you. But ultimately, so those are things that are going to be decided and debated. That's what you hear when you have all these state lawmakers coming out and saying that the NCAA hasn't gone far enough and that this is just a PR document and et cetera, et cetera. They're not withdrawing their pressure. They're not withdrawing their their laws and their bills. So it is possible that some of those things will change as you know, there is more and more pressure on this and, and to try to make it more of a free market. But Ultimately, what you're going to see, like whenever this eventually, when all the rules are ironed out, is this is going to look like a lot of sponsored Instagram posts. This is going to look like, you know, ad revenue on a YouTube channel or somebody getting paid to stream something on Twitch. Um, it's going to be a lot of it's going to be on social media. So I think that anyone who's familiar with the idea of like an Instagram influencer understands, you know, what this could ultimately look like, you know, a year from now or whenever this takes effect. Teaser, Nicole and I are working on a story together about that very topic. And I think that, you know, we've been saying that I think that everybody, you know, naturally is thinking about, oh, this means that uh, Tuscaloosa car dealership is going to sign every Alabama football player to an endorsement deal and, and things like that. And really the, the real life practical application of this for most athletes is going to be exactly what Nicole just said, becoming an influencer, whether you're and then you don't even necessarily have to be a huge superstar to do that, a huge football superstar. I think there's going to be opportunities for a lot of women's athletes and non-revenue sports athletes who are not household names to you and me, but they are in their sport and they carry a lot of clout and, and companies are going to want to uh, get into business with them. But Nicole, I think the biggest question on probably on people listening to this and football fans in general is how did this somehow end up with their still not being allowed to have NCAA football? Right. I think that was the number one takeaway is everyone had been expecting when you hear things like, okay, athletes can make money because of their likeness. You think, okay, video games. Great. The game that everyone loves that people grew up on, got people in love with college football. It's coming back. Right. And it was interesting. The mental gymnastics that were used to uh, justify it, not because I had been thinking all along that the NCAA didn't really want to get involved in group licensing, which is, you know, it's, it's a group of people and it's kind of like a, a, a blanket decision, right? Or a blanket deal. Because when you look at like group licensing, you think, oh, wow, it's like a class of people. Huh, they kind of look like a class of employees. Hmm, you know, you're treating them all the same, right? So like, I, I thought they wouldn't want to wade into that for that reason. But it was funny because the reason that Val Ackerman gave, and she was on the working group related to NIL, she said that they can't do group licensing at this time because there's no players union to collectively bargain against, which there's no union because the NCAA doesn't want the players to have a union and has blocked efforts to create a union. So it's like, well, you're using that as a reason, but it's something you never wanted to happen in the first place. So that's what they're saying, that like there would be no way to fairly negotiate to get to a point where someone could, you know, represent all of college football players in that type of an agreement, which is just pretty funny and kind of, you know, I, I mean, I got to chuckle out of that because it's exactly what they have never wanted to happen. Well, I think that also there's some stuff that needs to be sorted out. Like, you know, from talking to some college, former college athletes and stars about what they thought this could be, 
they don't really know. Um, but it was interesting as, uh, and I've talked to a couple of people who would have, who I think would have been big earners, at least relative to this. And they were like, you know what? $10,000 would have made a huge difference for me. And I think sometimes it's, especially when we're looking at it as, a, as adults and with jobs and you look at the money that people in the NFL and the NBA make, I think we lose sight. And some of this is different too, because if you talk to people far enough back, there wasn't cost of attendance and some other things that the, you know, the NCA has put in since then. But I think there's a lot of people who look and go, well, that's only going to be, maybe they'll only make ten dollars or $15,000, not this. That would be a huge difference for, for some of these kids in dealing with their own realities from a day-to-day standpoint. But like, look, let's look back at an example of A.J. Green, because this, this came up. He got suspended for four games for selling his jersey, where the NCAA cuts down on it is so far as what is related to their brand, right? So it's like if Stu Mandel is, is a college wrestler, he can market himself, but he can't market nor, you know the wrestling program he, he competes for. In a, in a way, it's like there's a there is a, a there is a line there that they're trying to tap dance around. Correct. Yes, and that's kind of this this question about like why a Zion Williamson wouldn't have been able to do a sponsored post wearing a Duke jersey, right? Um, and there are some of those restrictions with like the NFL PA. I was talking to an NFL agent. Um, who specializes in marketing deals about this. And like, you know, you can throw a red t-shirt on Patrick Mahomes and everyone knows who he is. But, you know, there's some college players who are a little bit lower down the depth chart and, you know, a jersey would would help and and make them a little bit more marketable because they'd be more recognizable. Um, But I just want to circle back on your point, Bruce, about, you know, the difference that five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars can make. It absolutely is huge. And, And, you know, when you think about guys you know, second string receivers or, um, you know, an, an elite gymnast or, you know, maybe athletes that we're not thinking about when we talk about this. We talk about Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields and what they're going to have. Um, you know, every athlete has the potential to have an audience. Um, everyone has followings. It, they're just different sizes. There are things called micro influencers where, you know, you can have potential deals and sponsorships if you have a very targeted audience. And, you know, one thing I keep coming back to is all of these college athletes, no matter where you are on the depth chart, no matter if you're a walk on you have a hometown. So you could be the biggest deal coming from that hometown. And there will be brands there that want to do posts with you want to do sponsored posts. Um, so I, I just think that it, it's like, oh, well, you know, the, the backup left tackle is not going to make as much as the quarterback. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how it is in pro sports and marketing in general, too. But that doesn't mean that like if that backup left tackle can make a couple thousand dollars, it's not going to make a huge difference to his family. I mean, think about the NCAA quote unquote scandals that have happened over the years. They're often not about that much money because it's not like that much money is required to make a difference in people's lives for their family or whatever it might be. People come from all different circumstances. So I just wanted to echo that. I totally agree that I think there's people are dismissing the idea that that a couple thousand dollars isn't going to make a big difference because because it will and it's better than nothing which is what they get now yeah i want to follow up on that's a you know like what you just said nicole it resonated with me because where i grew up was not a was relatively small town in upstate new york and charles davis who now a lot of people know as an nfl announcer and great guy and he went to tennessee um but charles was one of the biggest deals to come out of our area. Now he's not from my hometown. He's from a smaller hometown around it. But I remembered whenever the local paper would write about Charles, it wasn't all that often, but it was like, it was a big deal to the point when I can still remember this when I was, I don't know, Charles is four or five years older than me when I was probably in, in junior high, I think before a bowl game, he got sick and they talked about, uh, what the Tennessee training staff gave him, it was like seven up in saltines as if, wait a minute, like this, you know, it was like, like that was 
the greatest new science technology in our county that that all of a sudden, oh, well, this is how you should treat a cold because this is what they're giving Charles Davis. And and it kind of speaks to, and granted, that's a, that was a different time in terms of like how accessible things were um, in terms of what you get into the media. But to underscore the point of that guy who may not have been, he was a good player at Tennessee, but he obviously wasn't, you know, a, a, a all-timer there. But he had such a such a connection to our community that I think, and there's lots of people who fit into that category where if they were going to come back and do a signing or go to a car dealership or, or you know any one of 50 other businesses, 500 other businesses they could they could connect with, that's a great opportunity for them. And I, I think that's something that you're right, should not be overlooked in how it relates to this. Guys, I know that... Uh you know, the, the first instinct is always to criticize the NCA in these kind of situations. And before I do that, because I'm going to, I do want to say that, you know, I, I was impressed reading that document that they, how much they did acknowledge, especially on the social media angle, for instance, the fact that, hey, if every other student on the college campus can monetize their YouTube channel, we should probably be allowing the football players to do that. Now, as Nicole said earlier, they were kind of forced to do that, but at least that was the rationale. The part that I think people read and, and really roll their eyes is this notion that NCA enforcement and or a school's compliance department, which have enough trouble right now just monitoring like basic day-to-day stuff, are going to somehow determine what is fair market value for a for a endorsement deal. Um, or also they say they're going to have to, you know, regulate, monitor, make sure that if, if somebody makes a, a, an endorsement deal with a local booster, that that's not for recruiting purposes. Am I wrong or is that just impossible, what they're suggesting? Yeah, it, it's definitely, if not impossible, going to be very, very difficult to enforce, um, particularly the recruiting element. And that's what everyone is, you know, kind of very worried about. They're saying, you know, how are you going to stop somebody from, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I'll, I'll do a, you know, a $10,000, um, you know, marketing deal with you, you know, when you come to this school. Um, but how can you, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, I'll tell you that when you're 17. Um, that, that's going to be incredibly hard to to enforce um, and and to check up on. Um, but but this idea that like, that would be happening for an entire recruiting class. And that's why Alabama will get all these five stars. Like, there's just not that kind of money that people are just going to throw at every single player in a recruiting class, like a quarterback. Yeah. A star receiver. Sure. Um, but this idea that like there's this unlimited well of money that people are going to do just to, to impact recruiting. Um, that's th- these people are going to spend their money in other ways. They're also, you know, if you, if you spend your money on doing someone who's established themselves as a college star, that's different than, you know, trying to influence recruiting. Um, but I think the other point about, you know, how do you determine what is a fair deal and then how do you track it? Like, how do you track disclosures? You know, those are the two things that everyone I talk to who's been involved in name, image and likeness stuff. They, they say those are the, the whole deal here. That's if you, if you can't, if you mess up how you're going to figure out these deals and, and stamp them. And then if you mess up how people are going to disclose them and how easy it has to be, like it has to be as simple as a Venmo transaction saying like, I got this amount of money from this person, it's not going to work um, because it does need to be tracked. It does need to be, um, you know, followed above board so people can see what these amounts are and what seems fair and what's not. I'm paying you $100,000 to sign one football. Well, that's just you want to pay somebody $100,000. But also it's like, oh, you have a million Twitter followers and I want to pay you to do a tweet, but I'm only going to pay you $10. That's not fair either. So I think that's where you're going to see, you know, this, this ability to use agents to have them negotiate the deals. You know, that could be an important piece to that of, of trying to make sure that players are not being taken advantage of. And also that that the flip side that someone's not trying to, you know, kind of just skirt the actual rules of how this works to just pay somebody a lot of money just because they're really good at football and they just want to hand them like this lump sum of cash. Right. So. Um, all of that still needs to be worked out. It was all still pretty vague in the documents we got, but that's the whole crux of it. That's, that's how this is going to work moving forward. Well, good luck on the latter part of that, because that ties into the free market capitalism part and what Congress is going to be pushing back on them. So, 
I mean, that's the, I talked to somebody who's, who's high up in, uh, at a university and he said, you know, if there wasn't recruiting aspect of this, who cares? But there is, and that's what the NCAA is going to be fighting against and they're going to get a lot of pushback. I just don't think you can have it both ways. I don't think you can say, all right, we're, we're opening up this source of potential source of income that we've never allowed before. And so it's a free market now, except that it's not. We're going to restrict certain transactions or cap certain amounts of transactions. It just, that's the next, to me, that seems like that's the next lawsuit waiting to happen uh, as soon as this goes into effect. And It is. It absolutely is. Well, and, and, and how do you, how do you, who is the person or who is this mechanism saying on the front end, like, that seems like a fair deal based on what, right? Like, who is that, who's making that decision and what are they basing it on? We have no idea. They just said that they want something on that front end determining what's a fair deal, which also is not how a free market works. <laughs> a free market works. You get offered what the market will offer you. And and part of a free market is that, and this we see this certainly, I mean, great example of this is, is, was in the last dance with Scottie Pippen's contract, right? Some guys get massively overpaid and some people get really bad deals and get underpaid. That's just part of how the market works. So I don't know that you can say like, well, $400 for this uh, autograph appearance is uh, too much or too little. Um, just depends on what the company that is doing it is willing to pay. So um, lot, all of which is to say there's a lot to be sorted out. Um, before Nicole goes, I wanted to um, bring up a, a, a little bit of news that just broke um, from Bruce and Antonio Morales. And, I, and the reason I want to bring it up is this is something that, I don't know, a year ago, five years ago, you would never imagine would be considered news usc is hiring jacob brown as director of football video production and will stout assistant director of football video production they were part of the lsu digital team that produced all those great hype videos last season that went viral guys why is it a big deal that digital video people are moving from one school to another i don't know if i would say it's a huge deal but it's Bruce, it is <laughs> yes it is in this world, it is. A fan response, Brody Miller, our LSU writer, retweeted a response somebody sent to him that said, this is worse than losing Brady at Aranda. <laughs> okay, it's not, it's not that big. Yeah, and that's why, <laughs> I, I think that's where you pump the brakes on it. Yeah. Um, Will St- so I think what's, what's cool about it is Will Stout is a tw- 20 or 21-year-old who's still a student. I think he has had a year left to graduate from LSU. And part of that video team of those videos... Uh, the guy who wrote the scripts is is uh, is still there. Um, I'm blanking on his name. I want to say it's, give, pause for me. It's like Cody Cody Worsham is the guy who really put together all the scripts for everything, and then Derek Panamski uh, kind of oversaw everything. And Will was the guy who really put together all the art, and it's pretty powerful. Now, obviously, they had to go get some of the big name people they had towards the end including the rock to do it but those things i think what they help with is they they certainly help elevate the brand i mean if you don't win football games it does it doesn't help i think it uh, part of the reason why it took off is because they the way they played and because they went 15 and 0 and they would show those the hype video usually they would let they would put it out on social media before the team saw it but i believe um the the night before the national title game, they actually, the players were the first ones to see it. And so that part, it goes back to, I guess, the branding aspect of this. And I think that's why it's, that's why it's relevant. Um, and I do think it's look good on Mike bone. I think he's made a lot of, you know, he and his staff have made a lot of really shrewd moves in the off season uh, to, to kind of give, to, to make it seem like USC at least is trying and they are going out and trying to hire people that they think can address some of the issues that have have uh, the Trojans have really been floundering around with. And I think they've at least they're trying and give them credit for that. Yeah, I think it's important because, um, you know, this is such an important area for current players and really any college student. You know, I think everyone now thinks about building their brand and what that can mean for you. I mean, when you have someone like Tua thanking Alabama for what they did to help elevate his stature and and build his brand while he was a college student, like 
the video team is a huge part of that. And, um, you know, they're able to tell stories and get access that we can't. Um, they're able to elevate certain stories and get eyeballs on things. And, and I do think that, you know, having talked to agents and, and people in the marketing space around name, image and likeness, you know, are people going to make a decision about, okay, well, I'm going to go to this school because of this market and my opportunities there, and maybe I can hire an agent, maybe I can do this. I mean, it is not a stretch to think that having a great in-house video department and social team is going to is not going to make a difference to some athletes. And again, maybe they're not the ones you want, like maybe you don't want someone who's prioritizing that, but the fact that it could be in the back of their mind about what they can get out of their experience from a, you know, put them in a position to succeed in life and, and to to cash in on some things by the end of their college experience. Like those are things that, that could ultimately matter. Um, plus, the videos are super cool and they excite the fan base. And that's a really good reason to hire someone. But also, I do think that the way that a school is going to be able to support its athletes during this, and this is why a bunch of them have partnered with with companies like Open Doors and Influencer, um, the way that schools can support their athletes is going to be important as they have this new uncharted opportunity. As you guys mentioned, Will Stout is an undergraduate at, or at LSU. He actually put up, like, he's basically entering the transfer portal. He put up an announcement, uh, just like you see a lot of these athletes put up when they thank the school that they're leaving and how excited they are for the next opportunity. Um, it's just wild to me because I can remember a time when people didn't even really care about didn't or didn't really closely follow the coordinators switching schools or the assistant coaches, position coaches, and now we're now we're tracking the video guys. But you're absolutely right. And in fact, I had uh, somebody I interviewed uh, about NIL suggested that this would be a great opportunity. This is going to be a great opportunity for students on the campus. For instance, if you're a business student on the campus, you could make a nice little. Uh, side hustle for yourself by helping the athletes on campus market themselves. Or in this case, I mean, there's a lot of great graphic designers and video people that are 19 years old that could end up playing a big role in um, helping these athletes in the programs build their brand. So uh, just a sign of the times. Stu, they already are actually doing that in terms of you have like Ohio State. We did a story. I remember I worked with Andy on this, I don't know, maybe six weeks ago. Maybe it was less than that for all I know. But um, about just how uh, some some students have really become very involved in the recruiting offices. And those have grown into full-time jobs in those support staff roles. I think this is, you know, this is another ex- example of it. But it's already been going on. And... I think, as you said, it's just gonna it's gonna continue to explode as as schools continue to build their brand. But I remember listening to Mark Pantoni, who had, who's the Ohio State's really recruiting czar there, and their football program, and he talked about all the ways they are constantly trying to hammer home subliminally whatever it is the Ohio State brand into recruits minds whenever they look at their smartphones and so that that stuff has been going on for a while now and i think some of these schools some of the biggest schools who have the money to to really throw into it have tried to capitalize on it and they have yeah and just you know one last thing on those on those lsu guys because you know i've talked to will and 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 that whole group um during their run is you know there there's a different a different response and a different audience when you have someone like joe burrow share a video versus like the lsu team account right when you you talk about hometown influence and all these other types of areas that might attract people to follow an individual athlete those are the important things when you think about name image and likeness moving forward. Like what Joe Burrow was able to do to raise money for Athens is exactly, it's an extreme example and it's great for charity. Trevor Lawrence did this during COVID. Sam Ellinger did it too. Like these guys have platforms and followings and can get people to donate money, can get people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise because their name's attached. And that's why it's different than just a team sharing something and a team pushing something as their brand. And that's where the opportunity is, that that these individual athletes have people coming and getting 
you know, intrigued by them and, and wanting to follow them or look up to them for all different types of reasons. And that's where the market is. Um, and that's why it's more varied and different than like just an, a team account. Um, so it's just, it, it's all tied together and it's going to be really interesting to see what that looks like. And clearly there's going to be like a walk on long snapper somewhere who's going to go viral and make a ton of money from this. And we're all going to be like, how did that happen? But that is, that's, that could happen in this world too. And it's going to be fun to see kind of those weird and creative cases that are not the Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. We appreciate Nicole's time and insight on all these matters. You can follow her on Twitter at Nicole Auerbach uh, and read all of her work at The Athletic. Nicole, thanks for joining us. Anytime, guys. Anytime. Hey, I'm John Hayes, producer at The Athletic, and have a message from our sponsor, Manscaped. If you're bored in the house, bored in the house, bored, why not spend some time on yourself? Our sponsor today, Manscaped, is here to make sure you're well-groomed above and below the belt. Manscaped promotes clean hygiene when it comes to shaving, thanks to their lawnmower 3.0. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming. While you're probably looking for some new things to do at home, why not make manscaping part of your routine? It's precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. This third-generation trimmer features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents. Shaving is about to be nick-free thanks to Manscaped Advanced Skin Safe Technology. Subscribe to the perfect package and get a new replacement blade refill for your lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months, making sure your trimmer always stays fresh and clean. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code THEATHLETIC at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use code THEATHLETIC. And for a limited time, subscribers get not one, but two free gifts. The Shed Travel Bag, a $39 value, and the patented high-end performance anti-chafing Manscaped Boxer Briefs. So go to manscaped.com today and use code the athletic now back to the audible all right getting to the mailbag as always you can send your emails to the audible pod at gmail.com this first one bruce uh involves your your backyard your college football backyard in la from trent in oh we tried to do this once before bucharest romania did i get it right i don't think so bucharest I thought it was Bucharest. I thought it was Bucharest. Bucharest, Bucharest Romania. This is really embarrassing because this is not like a random place, you know. And I'm gonna, I'm actually going to. Um, You're gonna look it up right now. Pat my, I'm gonna look it up right now. But I'm also going to give myself a little more of the benefit of the doubt because you claim to be an academic and I do not. Uh, I never claim to be an academic, actually, and I'm certainly not an expert on cities in Romania. But uh, here's his question. I have no rooting interest, but how is it possible that UCLA isn't consistently good? I went to away games at both USC and UCLA, and if I was 18, I would pick UCLA every single time over USC. Beautiful campus, great weather, great location, fantastic stadium. It just doesn't make sense from an outsider perspective. Well, now let's go to somebody with an insider perspective. Uh, So let's start with this. USC is much more committed to playing football at a high level than UCLA is from an infrastructure standpoint, from a commitment from the university. You know, all those, UCLA has a beautiful campus. Actually, I, you know what, USC now has a beautiful campus. It, it is much different than when I first moved out to LA in the early 2000s, a lot of it was, a lot of it was run down and they have really, really renovated it in spectacular fashion. And there's a lot of positives. The Coliseum, they've also renovated. Um, but you know what? I I think also another challenge with UCLA is it's not that easy to get football players in there academically. I think along with Stanford, they have one of the hardest uh, requirements to get in there. So I think that, that makes it more challenging to handle. But should UCLA be a lot better than it has been over time? No doubt, because you're sitting, because a lot of the reasons that Trent just laid out. But um, I think you're selling USC short from 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 all that it has to offer, especially when you consider what USC's 
like the history kind of helps sell it, right? And so because USC has produced an insane amount of football talent and has had so many great teams and the tradition is what it is, it helps it along in a ways that it's not to say UCLA hasn't because obviously there's Troy Aikmans and, you know, it's the same university that produced Jackie Robinson and, and a bunch of other, you know, great athletes. But USC, when it comes to football, is just a notch above or two notches above profile-wise. Next question, Stu, is from James Cunningham in Raleigh, North Carolina. Stu and Bruce, this week on the pod, you were discussing five-star and four-star recruits and how much more of a success rate they have in the NFL than three-star and lower. Your argument does not stand up well when it comes to quarterbacks. In the NFL right now, there are only two five-star quarterbacks in the, in the league, Murray and Stafford. Cam Newton, as on the email, as on as of this email, is unsigned. There are also five four-star starting quarterbacks, Deshaun Watson, Sam Darnold, Jared Goff, Derek Carr, and Dwayne Haskins. You can you can have all those guys. I'll still take three stars, Lamar Jackson, Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Matt Ryan, and Russell Wilson. It goes to show you that in the NFL, the star system doesn't mean anything when it comes to quarterbacks. Yeah. What do you say, Stu? <laughs> well, we, we've talked many times. Quarterback is definitely the position that is the hardest to project and and probably the one that is most ripe to produce hidden gems and, and to have five-star guys flop and vice versa. There, You don't have the numbers that you do at linebacker or offensive line. That being said, you know, I always default to or I always point out that um, as low as those percentages may seem, it's, it's like 1.7% of all college football recruits are five-star recruits. So even with just two starters out of 32, that's higher than that. And certainly if you want to combine the five and four stars, I mean, I think there's even, it's still only less than 10% of a class that are four stars. And yet, so if you're talking about uh, four out of 32, Bruce, you're better at math than me. How many is that? What percentage is that? Four out of 32 yeah. is like one out of eight, and that's like, tw- I don't know, 12 or 15 Yeah, so if it was completely random, you know, the, the numbers would be even lower than that. But I think in general, the correlation between recruiting rankings and NFL draft position in general, I'm sure, is higher across the board than it is at the quarterback position where, um, I mean, we've seen over, I think you wrote this maybe, or Andy wrote this, that you know, tracking, um, I'm going to end up crediting the wrong person. Maybe it was Max. The, I mean, the number of five-star quarterbacks, there's only maybe one or two in a given class, and half of them end up transferring or not. You know, Jacob Eason was a five-star quarterback. He ended up a, 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 a late-round pick in this draft. Like, there's often as many, if not more, stories that go that way than the Aaron uh, Kyler Murray Matt Stafford one. So he's not wrong about the quarterback position. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say it's... I also think there's... I also think, like, I did that story. Uh, it was on the 2013 high school quarterback class where the five stars were Max Brown and Christian Hackenberg and the guys who turned out to be the, the big-time NFL guys and went high in the draft. Jared Goff, Baker Mayfield, and Mitch Trubisky went way later. They weren't... I think the highest ranked of those guys was 19th, and then Baker was like 71st. And I think some of that has to do with, with look, the, the colleges get it wrong. I mean, Patrick, look where Patrick Mahomes went. Nobody, you know, Aaron Rodgers was a unique example. He was a late bloomer. I think some of these things are circumstance, but I also think some, a lot of it is circumstance of what kind of, that position more than any others, I think, is reflective in, into what kind of environment you go into, right? So um, it's just it's an interesting it's an interesting dynamic as it relates to where you could be a, a, a great edge rusher, and that stuff is going to really stand out. And I think people are going to say, okay, that's a five star guy. Whether it's Jadavian Clowney back in the day, if he was Julius Peppers, whoever Chase Young, I mean, it's it's hard not to see those guys. Whereas quarterback, it's such a intangible nuanced position that I think it's just harder for, for, for people, whether they're on the two, four, seven rival side of it or actual football coaches whose livelihoods are dependent on winning games. You know, that's, it's hard. It's also just such a small sample size. I mean, most schools sign one quarterback per year and it's like a 50, 50 chance, whether that guy's going to actually go on to be 
a success at your school or, or transfer or be a flop. And it really, it's really magnified. Whereas if Alabama signs uh, four, four or five star linebackers in a class and two of them go on to be all Americans and two of them never see the field overall, that was a pretty big success in, in who you picked at that position. So um, all of that helps to explain why there's less of a correlation with quarterbacks than with other positions. Ryan O, Greenville, South Carolina. Stu and Bruce, hope all is well during this strange time. Given the injury that Tua suffered in November and still was drafted fifth in the draft, my question is why would an elite QB like Trevor Lawrence or perhaps Justin Fields feel like there's any real risk to playing next season if it ended up being a delayed season? Short of a career-ending injury, which could just as easily happen in the fall, is there any real risk that either of these QBs would fall below where Tua fell, given how they're currently valued, even if they had a knee injury? Well, look, I, I think Tua didn't have to collect, didn't, you know, loss of value insurance wasn't, didn't become an issue. I, I do think there's, there is a risk of injury, but look, that's why they're going to have insurance policies for it, right? So, I mean, if they had an awful, awful year where they threw, you know, 23 picks and had 20 touchdowns, I mean, I still think, I don't know, I find that hard to believe given the talent around them that that would happen. I mean, I just don't see it. But those, are, I think, are rare cases. But I don't know. I mean, what do you what do you think? You think there's any chance? Well, of that? in in the story I wrote about, you know, outlining what a winter football season might look like. I mean, that was a huge uh, point of emphasis for me. Is that the the bumping up against the NFL draft? You may have a bunch of guys choose just to not play the season because of injury risk. But not so much because it would affect their draft stock. I mean, that would definitely be true later down the line. But I don't think a team is going to pass on Trevor Lawrence because he might not be ready to play uh, week one of his rookie season. It's it's more the for the players. Do they want to risk an injury that if it takes six to eight months to recover? Okay, if it happened in November, you'd be fine. You'd be ready to play the next season. Um, in this case, by playing you 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 might not be able to play at all your rookie season, or you might only be able to play half the season. And, you know, I think that's got to be a, a, a thing that, that guys take into consideration. Um, hopefully uh, it's not delayed until January, but uh, if it is, I do think you'll see, I think there's a better chance that guys like that would decide to not to play than a guy who is, you know, a lot of those quarterbacks you mentioned that, aren't proven commodities yet, aren't necessarily, haven't come close to cementing their draft status. I think for them, the the potential upside of playing another season and improving their draft stock maybe should outweigh the risk of a, of a season-ending injury and, and the effect that might happen. Uh, last one is from John Hayes in Spokane, Washington. John Hayes, this is not the John Hayes who is the producer of our podcast. He is based in Charlotte. This is a completely different John Hayes. Bruce, I know you spent some time around Ole Miss during the Ed Ogeron year, so I'm curious if you had much interaction with Jevin Sneed. Seeing the Athletics' Dane Brugler revisiting his way-too-early 2020 mock draft, it reminded me of Sneed, who was a projected first-round pick in a lot of those way-too-early 2010 mock drafts. Some may have even list him as number one, or candidates be drafted first overall, but it didn't work out that way, and instead, Sneed dropped all the way out of the draft, which doesn't happen very often unless injury-related that I can think of. Another interesting aspect about Snead's situation, and I had no idea this was the case, considering today's climate, is that the 2009 season Ole Miss had multiple players contract swine flu, with Snead being one of them. Do you have any thoughts, recollections on Snead, and what did you think of those lofty draft projections? Well, you know, look, I, I thought he had a good arm, and he had good size, and he definitely had good receivers to throw to when he finally got able to play. Uh, it would have been interesting if he had come out the year before, I do think he would have gone higher. I had a conversation, remember, with uh, Chad Morris, who had been his high school coach, and I'd actually met Chad for the first time when Sneed came on his official visit after he was transferring out of Texas. And uh, I ended up getting a drink with Chad Morris and another and a coach on their staff um, that weekend. And so when I saw Chad Morris, when he got the SMU job, we talked about Jevin and, and really it was one of those things where, again, I kind of go back to, to when we were talking about quarterbacks and circumstance, I think after a while, I think his, 
Um, maybe dealing with expectations in some of the stuff. I don't think he was um, maybe as comfortable with it and kind of felt a lot of the pressure on it. And um, but if you, if you ask Chad Morris, and like I remember, you know, this is was in a story I did for the Athletic probably a year or so ago. Um, you know, he firmly believes he was every bit the talent that people thought. Hey, this guy could be a first round pick. He believed it. It just you know, things kind of started to backslide for him. And, and like I said, it's such a nuanced position and such a confidence-driven position. I think, I think it, you know, in my opinion, from what I've talked to, the people I've talked to think it really did, did affect him. And, and uh, he really struggled with it. And it ends up being, obviously, well, I don't know if it's obvious. Some people might not even realize this. Jevin Sneed died last year at the age of 32. Um, just a, a terribly sad story. And, and you know, Reports at the time indicated that it may have been linked to head injuries that he uh, sustained while he was in college. So I, I, I go back to you. You would have had much more contact with him than I did, but I went to Austin the the preseason after the Vince Young national title season, specifically to write about the two candidates who were fighting to be uh, Vince Young's successor, and that was Jevin Sneed, the hotshot five-star true freshman and a very unknown redshirt freshman named Colt McCoy. So, uh, so I was there at the very beginning of his career and obviously it did not go the way he had planned. So, um, I, but that is a, a prime example of what we were just talking about a little bit ago uh, about these way too early mock drafts. Somebody actually, believe it or not, Gil Brandt, who is a very, very respected, you know, NFL uh, figure tweeted that he had just finished evaluating his the senior prospects for next year, and he only had two quarterbacks in them. You want to guess who they were? I uh, one one uh, one. Let's say uh, Clemson quarterbacks, Chase Bryce, and your quarter or your alma mater's quarterback. Because I saw people tweeting about it, Hunter Johnson. Yeah. Like, what was he watching his high school tape? There's absolutely no reason why anything that he did, he didn't barely even played last year. So, and then some, uh, Chris Vanini, I believe, tweeted a screenshot of that along with some some past early wonder draft phenomenon like um, uh, Mitch Leidner from Minnesota. You know, it's just like they're just grasping at straws this early on. Who was the other guy? Uh, in this year's? Yeah, you said there were two. Oh, Sam Ellinger. Sam Ellinger. Senior. Um, these are senior to- quarterbacks. Let me go back to the uh, to the what Chad Morris told me. Unbelievable talent. I'm talking unbelievable. Big, had it all, gun for an arm, rocket, 6'4", runs. I can tell you exactly what happened. He lost it between the ears. He lost his focus. He got involved, as we see many times. He was enjoying being a college quarterback, I guess, at Ole Miss. And he, when he pleaded with him, you know, when he was saying, come out early, don't do it, and Jevin, Jevin did. Um, just to follow up on what you had mentioned before, I had talked to him not long before he passed, and he was living in Southern California, and he talked about thinking about the what-ifs and what he could have done differently and everything. And then the last thing he said to me was like, I really try to think more about what I can do today to ensure that I'm happy tomorrow. And I didn't, you know, I heard the comment, and it didn't, you know, I, it kind of was got eerier when I thought back to it. Um, you know, after seeing that he passed away, because when I talked to him, he was always a really nice guy. Um, but just to to hear how it's, it's what it sounded like, how much he was struggling with things, it's, it's it's a really sad story, and I feel for his family. You know, having to deal with it in the wake of everything like that. I mean, a lot of people deal with disappointments in their life or their career not going the way they had hoped, but very few in such a public way where the whole country, all, everybody that follows football knew what happened with Jevin Snead's career. And I just can't imagine what that's like privately to deal with once, you know, once you're out of the spotlight and uh, adjusting to life after football. So um, that, that went down a very deep and dark route, but uh, I do think that was a, an interesting and timely question from, from the other John Hayes over on the West coast. As always, send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. 
If you enjoy the Audible, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review and a rating if you could, too. It helps us get the word out. Our producer is John Hayes. Our theme song is Dangerous by Kevin and the Octaves. You can download their music on Spotify or Apple Music. Follow me on Twitter at SL Mandel. Follow Bruce at Bruce Feldman CFB. And if you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, what are you waiting for? You can get 40% off an annual subscription by using this link, theathletic.com slash theaudible. That's 40% off your subscription to The Athletic. We'll talk about it for years.